Shadi Nabhan podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Today, you are in for a treat. Sometimes I do sound like a broken record by telling you every episode is a treat, but that's not a broken record. That's a fact. Every episode on Healthcare Unfiltered is an absolute treat. Okay, enough already about this. But really, I have the pleasure of hosting Dr. Amy Barnhorst and Rocco Pellin. They both have done a lot of work and a lot of research on the intersection of mental illness and firearm risks and firearm laws. I got to actually know and recognize the work of Dr. Barnhorst by finding a tweet thread that she actually released. It's been over several weeks ago when she, uh, her and Rocco Pellin published a paper that, um, you know, was not, you know, wrote a paper that was not published, but the managing editor of that paper that was reviewing this paper back and forth ended up plagiarizing and taking much of the content of their paper, putting that content under his name. And Amy, Dr. Barnhorst, tweeted about this incident, and that went viral with thousands and thousands of likes. So I got to actually see it. And I reached out and I wanted to talk to both of them about that experience. But really more importantly, I wanted to better understand the research that they are doing in terms of mental illness and firearm law. Look, I think mental illness is always a tough topic to talk about. There's no question that it is never an easy topic to address or discuss. I think patients or people in general might be a little bit uncomfortable discussing their psychological issues and psychological complaints or their mental health issues. I do think that physicians and healthcare providers may be uncomfortable asking questions pertaining to mental health and mental illness. All of that together might lead to under-detection of mental illness, might lead to under-detection of some of the ailments that um, the psychological ailments that uh, people uh, suffer from. And we're gonna talk about that, but also then the intersection between mental illness and firearm violence, as well as the type of research that could be done. And we will segue from that to the article that we just talked about and how it was uh, plagiarized. So I really hope that you enjoy today's podcast and today's episode, because I think we are gonna talk about a wide range of topics, all of which are really important to wherever you are in society or in the healthcare macro system. Before I air the episode that I taped with Amy Barnhorst and Rocco Pellin, I would like to plug the show by asking you to subscribe to the show and to rate it, as well as to write a brief review if you have some time. You can find this show on all podcast outlets, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Stitcher, pretty much every single podcast outlet that you would like to actually, you will find this podcast. So write us a brief review, refer a friend or a colleague, subscribe to the, uh, to the show. And without further ado, I'm going to leave you with 
Dr. Amy Barnhurst and Rocco Pellon on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. Well, folks, I'm really very happy, privileged, and honored today to host two colleagues that I have not met in person. I actually um, got to learn about the story via social media, which tells you about the uh, power of social media. But I, I'm gonna, you're, you'll understand as we go through the conversation why I became very interested in this topic. Um, we are going to, by the way, air an episode in a couple of weeks about COVID-19 and the impact of COVID-19 on mental illness and so forth. But there is an element of mental illness discussion into this podcast and the intersection between mental illness and firearms. And, and we're going to even segue into publications and scientific integrity. So there's something for everyone on today's podcast. I'm obviously very happy to uh, be joined with Dr. Amy Barnhorst and her colleague, Rocco Pallon. I told uh, Dr. Barnhorst before we got on the air that I'm starstruck because I looked at many of her interviews and her op-eds and articles. So I, uh, I'm, uh, I'm really, truly uh, very honored that uh, you're with us. So Dr. Barnhorst, and I'll call you Amy um, after this, maybe just a little bit about you and um, your training. I mean, are you emergency room physician? Are you a psychiatrist? What got you interested and what do you actually do day in and day out from clinical care and then research-wise? And then we go to Rocco. Thanks, Chadi, and thanks for having us on this podcast. Yeah, so I, I did my medical school at UC Davis, and I always thought I would be an emergency medicine physician because I was really outdoorsy. I rock climbed, and I surfed, and I, you know, seemed like I had a lot of Patagonia jackets, so it seemed like I would fit right in with that crowd. And I really loved working in the ER, but I also have a very strict 10 p.m. bedtime. So I knew that was never going to work out as a, as a life choice. But I also was really intrigued by people who were having psychiatric emergencies in the ER, by people who, um, you know, I, I thought of all the, the organs that kind of like go wrong, that when the brain has problems, it's really the most interesting to me. And it has the most far-reaching effects on people's lives and people's families and people's ability to work and, you know, keep stable housing and make good decisions. And so that was the field that I was really drawn to, but I was fortunate in that I found this great niche where I can be an emergency psychiatrist. And so most of my clinical work now I do in, um, either in the emergency room, seeing people on psychiatric holds or with psychiatric problems or in a psychiatric crisis unit. And I also do a fair amount of inpatient work. I, I function mostly like a sub right now. So I, I kind of sub in at a number of different places when they need clinical coverage. So I work at the uh, inpatient mental health hospital for the county. And I also work at the county jail where there's an inpatient psychiatric unit. So I mostly see people who have really serious mental illness and, um, you know, are on involuntary holds of some way. And mostly I was just, you know, minding my own business doing clinical work. And then the shooting at Sandy Hook happened in, I think, 2013, 12, um, at the, in December. And at the time I also had kids in elementary school. And so that that shooting hit me particularly hard as a mom. But as a psychiatrist who was at the time running a crisis unit, there was all this, all this cry about this was a failure of the mental health system. Uh, this guy was mentally ill, obviously, and this isn't a gun problem. This is a problem with the way we, you know, fail to treat people with mental illness. 
And I was thinking, you know, I'm, I'm the person on the front lines of that if the police had decided that this guy somehow needed to come in for psychiatric care, many of the other shooters, I'm the person they would bring them to. And it's really tricky because a lot of them don't meet the criteria for the police to just detain them, pick them up, and for me to put them on an involuntary hold. Nor do a lot of these guys have some really clear indication that there's a treatable mental illness that I could, you know, medicate out of them so they wouldn't perpetrate a mass shooting. So I got in, that's, that's how I got involved in firearm stuff actually was I started um, with an opinion piece about mental illness and mass shootings that was published in the SAC B in 2013, talking about how the mental health system isn't really the solution to this, this mass shooting problem. Yes, we need lots more resources for people with mental illness, but that's not a solution for mass shootings. Rocco, a little bit about you and how you got involved and how do you meet Amy? Sure. Um, so I, I have a background in public health and I was working in a community and youth development organization in New Orleans doing evaluation and research for programs. Um, and I was, I was struck by the, the violence, the community violence and gun violence specifically that I saw happening to the kids that I was working with. Um, and so I had an opportunity to really focused in on the research, which is what I was trained in, um, and fire and violence prevention with Dr. Wintermute, who runs the University of California Fire and Violence Research Center. Um, and that's how I got into firearm violence prevention. So um, I actually started work with Dr. Wintermute the day after the Las Vegas shooting in 2017. And things were, were crazy and busy and there was a flurry of stuff going on. And Garen really felt like we should sort of branch out from research and try to do some, some programming and some education for clinicians about what they can do to intervene to reduce gun injuries and deaths. So we, that day or that week or something, we started um, what we ended up calling the What You Can Do initiative, just providing education and resources and training for a variety of clinicians on how to um, identify patients who are at risk for different types of firearm injury and then talk with them about the importance of safe storage or um, further intervention when that was clinically possible and appropriate. Uh, and so then... I met Amy somewhere in that work, not, not late after we started that. And then uh, we, about a year and a half ago, um, got funding from the state of California for three years to start what we named the Bullet Points Project, um, which has now become uh, a dedicated organization to further develop evidence space educational tools um, and trainings for clinicians in California and across the country um, to do the same sorts of stuff, to talk with patients um, about firearms, the risk of having firearms in the home and how to um, act to reduce that risk. You have a nice website, actually, the Bullets Points. I, I checked it out and it's, um, it's well done. You have a big team. I mean, I, I was pretty impressed how large the team is. Um, I don't think I, I didn't count maybe about 10 people. At least I saw the, the pictures and so forth. So it's congratulations on doing this. We'll talk about this a little bit more, but Amy, I want to start with you a little bit about just to, just to level set about mental illness, because I mean, you know, 
we're both physicians. And I think we know, unless the patient comes in, we can diagnose that patient. I mean, if the patient is at home and has not really sought medical help or have not really entered the medical system, it's going to be undiagnosed. And I think I don't have stats. This is just my gut feeling. I always like to support my my thoughts with data, but I don't have. But but I think for physical illness, folks are more likely maybe to go and see help because you're having belly pain, chest pain, headache, whatever it is. You just go in. There's a, there's a still a stigma I think about mental illness where either the physician sometimes not comfortable asking about or the patient fears admitting something because this will go on the medical records. And if they are seeking employment somewhere and they want to ask for records and they see this person has depression or whatever it is, this might impact employment. I mean, I think there are so many reasons. Take us through culturally and as a society, do we really have a stigma about mental health and illness where we have underreporting, we have problems with people seeking help? Or is this just a myth that I tend to believe it exists? I mean, wh wh where do we really stand there? You see what I'm trying to get at? And it's, I, it's such a, the, the question about stigma and mental illness is such a complicated one because there is a stigma about mental health diagnoses and mental illness. And there's a bunch of other things that contribute to people's inability to get care too. So I'll start with what I think is the actual stigma. And that's that it's part of how, Mental illnesses, unlike a lot of medical illnesses, they don't have as objective of diagnostic criteria. So, you know, to be diagnosed with diabetes, you have to have a fasting blood sugar over this or three repeat, you know, non-fasting blood sugars. To, to have a, a STEMI, you have to have certain EKG findings or certain markers. You know, people know what the objective criteria are. And yes, they change a little bit, you know, like we've changed our, our parameters for hypertension and diabetes and pre-diabetes over the years. but you don't have to, there's not a lot of nuance to deciding whether or not somebody meets those, those numbers. In diagnosing mental illness, we have the DSM criteria that people go through, but a lot of that is sort of subjective and it's hard for patients to say like, yes, I very definitively had three of these five symptoms for one week, three years ago. People don't remember. What if it was doesn't exactly meet the criteria? So there's a lot more nuance to the diagnostics and it's much more subject to the person's recall if it's not happening in the present, if it's a historical diagnosis. But then partially because of that, partially because of other things, it's there's this idea that because it's in your head, you should be able to get yourself out of it. So people who are depressed and people who have family members or friends who are depressed, they often don't think like, oh, this is a psychiatric problem for which somebody needs treatment, they think like, well, this person just needs to get it together. You know, they need to like get up, get on a robust exercise program, eat more healthily, be more positive. And that works for some people with really mild depression who can do it. But for somebody who's like really in the throes of a depressive episode, you know, the thought of getting 30 minutes of exercise a day is like a joke. I mean, they can't get out of bed. So there's this misconception about you know, the severity of illness and what it takes to treat it. And I often have friends or family members describe something to me that in my mind, I think like, oh, wow, this sounds very serious. Like this person really needs treatment. But the solution of that friend or family member is like, oh, you know, so I've been like trying to get them out on walks or I've been trying to, you know, get them to drink more water or, so, you know, something that's kind of perpetuating this idea of like, you can just pull yourself out of this because it's all in your head.
And it is all in your head, but not everybody can pull themselves out of it. And then that perpetuates this shame, I think, for the people who can't pull themselves out of it. And particularly with depression, one of the symptoms of depression is feeling like a burden, feeling like you're no good, your life is worthless. And so if you're somebody who normally is, you know, an avid cyclist, you have a job, you provide for your family, you're a parent, and now you're so depressed that you can't function doing any of those things, one of the symptoms of your depression is likely to be that you feel like crap because you're not able to do the things that everyone's relying on you to do. And then that perpetuates your depression. You never think to yourself like, oh, well, I can't do these things because I have this illness. You think I can't do these things because I'm a bad person. I'm worthless. I'm terrible. If you had like a broken leg and you couldn't make dinner for your family or clean up the house like you normally do, or, you know, go to your job as a warehouse person, you would say, well, I can't do these things because my leg's broken, but I'll be back when I'm better. People don't think that way about their depression. And in some mental illnesses, like, you know, bipolar disorder, if you become manic or if you have a psychotic illness, it's part of the illness to not recognize that you have an illness. So it's very rare that I have psychotic people. Uh, it happens sometimes, but it's very rare that I see psychotic people who come to me and say, my problem is I have these voices in my head and I would like treatment for them to go away. You know, when you work in, you know, again, cardiology or GI medicine, you might have somebody's come in and say like, I'm having chest pain and shortness of breath. I would like treatment for it. So it goes away. I'm having stomach pain or constipation. I would like treatment for it. So it goes away. In psychiatry, people come in and say, there are these voices in my head. And so what I need is for the person who put them there to be arrested and be investigated and go to jail. They don't make the connection that the symptoms are because of a mental illness. So there's kind of this, this internalized problem of not recognizing the illness that f- makes it even more difficult for people to get into care. Yeah. And, and I think when patients come in and see their uh, primary care doctor and or other physicians, do you think physicians are comfortable asking about psychiatric issues because you you see these folks in the emergency situation so you're gonna you know they're already in the emergency room they're having an episode so you know they may how often i guess how often from the patients that you see they've seen a healthcare provider in the past three months you know what i mean i'm trying to figure out how much the physicians us me and others are comfortable of asking about these problems versus sticking to the chest pain or the GI issues, do you have a stats into the percent of patients that by the time they are seeking psychiatric help, how, how, you know, if they've seen a provider in the past three months or six months that could have diagnosed something when it's less severe, that could, that could be Rocco's new research project, by the way. (laughs) I, you know, that's a tricky one. I know there's statistics on, um, people who die by suicide and how recently they've seen a primary care doctor. But those, the statistics that I see cited all the time don't actually compare that to people who haven't died by suicide and how often they've seen a primary care doctor. And it's also difficult because the folks who come to me in a crisis, the majority of them are not there of their own volition. They were brought in by somebody else, whether it was police or family members or a friend. But I think that, you know, I think that primary care doctors and you know, ER doctors, other people who are on the front line of things are getting much better. We're, we're decreasing the barriers to talking about mental illness. 
And um, if you just look at generations, you know, when I was in high school or college, nobody talked about their depression or anxiety. I don't know of anyone that I was growing up with that took antidepressants, not because I think nobody took them, but nobody talked about it. It was not the kind of thing you mentioned. And nowadays, you know, kids these days, they'll totally talk about their social anxiety or their depression or their, you know, whatever it is. And they're very open about it. People are much more willing to have these conversations and mental health resources are much more readily available. People use them more. I think the next generation, and this includes physicians, feels less of that sort of barrier of embarrassment about talking about these things, which I think is really good. Although I, I do worry about over-prescribing a lot of medications for children. <laughs> yeah, well, it's good and bad, right? Like, I think it's really good for people to talk about, talking about mental health, like the same way we talk about physical health, like, hey, get exercise, eat healthy foods. Um, we, talk, we should talk about mental health, like you might be feeling stress or depression or anxiety or have thoughts about harming yourself. Let's talk about that. Let's not necessarily medicate it because you know we're not gonna treat somebody for cardiovascular disease until they have it, but we might, we might talk about cardiovascular health. And so I think that that's important for kids too, is that to have that idea that like every negative emotion you have isn't an illness that needs to be treated, but it's important to kind of keep it in the conversation. Absolutely. And, and Rocco, when we talk about mental health and we try to link that to violence. I mean, I think we, we can all agree, I hope, that not everybody with mental health has violence tendency, right? I mean, we have, you know, thankfully, this is not the case. Are there specific elements of somebody who has a mental health problems or are there specific mental health diseases that put somebody at higher risk of being violent, whether it's to harm himself or harm others? Is there... Is there something phenotype or some characteristic that should raise alert amongst family, friends, or even healthcare providers that add tendency to violence? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll answer the, the first part of what you said, but then give the rest to Amy. I think that it's very true that m most violence, most violence per against others, um, as opposed to suicide, is certainly perpetrated not by people who have mental illness. It's overwhelmingly, you know, other people. We shouldn't attribute community violence or interpersonal violence overwhelmingly to mental illness. That's just not the case. Um, but on risk factors and markers, and then I think Amy should be the one to, to talk about that. <laughs> and I would say that um, the biggest risk factor in the psychiatric diagnosis is really substance use. There's correlations between stimulant abuse and violence, alcohol use and violence, certainly any social PD and violence, because that's one of the um, criteria. And there's a little bit of a risk with early psychosis and violence. I mean, it's very small, but people who are in the throes of psychosis and maybe operating on delusions where they think that, you know, if they don't hurt this, if they don't, you know, hurt this person to defend their family, then their family will be in danger. People who are otherwise you know, very good people who would not be predisposed to violence may do extraordinary things when they have a belief system that's, you know, not real, or people who are hearing vo intolerable voices telling them repeatedly to do something violent. But overall, that risk is very small among people with psychosis who are a very small percentage of even people with mental illness, let alone the overall population. But I think that we often make that linkage because there are some acts of violence that we hear about in the media 
that just sound, and here I use finger quotes, they sound crazy, right? Like who would do such a thing? And it's funny when you think about it, because we can, we can all sort of relate to like, oh, well, it was an armed robbery of a bank. So like, I get it. They were going after money or even domestic violence. You know, maybe we would never do that, but you understand how a dispute somehow could escalate that without having to put it in this in this black box category of, well, that person clearly was mentally ill because nobody would go shoot up a school unless they were quote unquote crazy. So there's some, there's some extreme of horror beyond which we just easily, we just easily go to this idea that the person must have been mentally ill because there's no possible other reason for it. But I mean, Rocco, is that, is that crazy to think? I mean, if somebody goes into a school and is going to shoot 20 kids, God forbid, is, you know, is it weird that me as a citizen think this is absolutely a crazy person to do this? I mean, like, do you, can you see where the public is coming from? I mean, who would really commit such a heinous act? So is that crazy to think that that person is crazy? That's a weird well, question, by the way. Yeah, I, I think that I understand that. I understand that interpretation. But especially when you hear Amy talk about it and speak about how there are so many other factors for many of those shooters, those perpetrators, that aren't mental illness. There are other things, other things that can't, you know, aren't attributable to something that's diagnosed or diagnosable. And and so yes, I like I I see how that understanding is perpetuated, but I, I also think that there is some mislabeling, especially on the part of the media and other people who speak prominently after events like that, that leads to blaming it on mental illness and then increasing this sort of sometimes false relationship between those kinds of acts and mental illness. I tend to agree with you. I don't think we, I don't think we need to equate every single heinous crime to mental illness. I think there are bad people out there. And I think it's up to the experts like Amy, you, and other folks to tell us whether this person has a psychiatric illness or not. I don't think, I guess I can understand where the public is coming from, but then experts like yourselves need to say, this Mr. X definitely has a psychiatric illness that may have led to this and Mrs. Y did not. I mean, I think, I think we, you know, we do need to have that differentiation because at least in my mind, I'm thinking... If somebody has an underlying illness, it could be treatable, hopefully, that might prevent that. But, you you know, there are bad people in society. We all know that as well. Well, another, another kind of interesting finding that's an aside to this is that we've done some work looking at media after the Parkland shooting, um, specifically. And so we, we've, part of what we've looked at is who the media talks to, who is, like, quoted or... Um, spoken of. And there's a lot of interviewing of politicians and law enforcement, and there's very much less of, of um, clinicians or researchers or people in mental health or people in public health. And so the messages may not be as informed by that kind of clinical expertise or health expertise as they could or should be. Yeah, I agree. And one of the big, I mean, I, I, I totally get why people say like, oh, this person must be mentally ill. But like Rocco said, if you don't have somebody who understands the nuance of mental illness informing it, you know, it's easy to just buy that. And on some level, it's a semantic issue, right? Like, are, are they mentally ill or are they not? Like, 
the only reason it really matters is from a policy perspective, because, you know, I'm all for throwing more resources at the mental health system and we need that, but we are kidding ourselves if we think that's a solution for community violence or mass shootings. We don't have the evidence to back that up at all. And, you know, even if we decide that the folks who are perpetrating mass shootings that we do want to call them mentally ill, if we're going to use that label, the real question is, can these kinds of events be prevented through the mental health system? And right now the answer is a pretty clear no. But your, your, your vision is that they can be prevented through a different um, avenue, which is firearm laws. And um, I wanted to explain to us what red flag laws are because I was reading about them in some of your, your talks, but firearm laws, because you believe that firearm laws would be the ones that could uh, reduce or mitigate, minimize the mass shootings per se. Um, so take us through, Amy, a little bit into who is responsible for this, the federal government or the state? And then I want to pivot to Rocco because I want to try to understand how do you do this while maintaining the Second Amendment? Because obviously, you know, again, I'm not a constitutional scholar by any stretch of the imagination, but you know, I think uh, you hear that all the time. So are we, are you proposing we need to like reform the second amendment because it's changed? Are, are you suggesting we need to, how do we take us through your mind thinking? Because you, you've done so much work on this over the past decade. Amy, we'll start with you. Oh, okay. I'll start a little bit by just saying that, um, these are laws that are being passed by individual states and each state has slightly different criteria for them and different people who can petition for them. But the idea is that it's a law that's not, um, that really gets at the, the final path to, or the final step in the pathway to becoming a mass shooter, which is getting a gun or guns and ammunition. And so regardless of whether or not the person is doing it because of delusions, doing it because of a desire for revenge against classmates they felt disrespected them, doing it because it's a domestic violence incident that is now spread outside the home, um, doing it for reasons that we'll never know about, it cuts off at that point of them having access to a weapon. And it doesn't matter if the person has a criminal history, if the person has a diagnosed mental illness, it just matters that they are of concern making threats and either have or could have access to a gun. And it allows for somebody who who is concerned. So in most states, it's a family member, or a law enforcement officer. It allows them to petition the court to get an order to uh, remove any firearms the person does have access to and prohibit them from buying more. And Rocco's done some great research on this topic, so I'll let her take it from there. Yeah, I think that, so it's kind of, in California, we call them gun violence restraining orders. So that's mostly because they are analogous to domestic violence restraining orders, but instead of separating people, you're separating a person from firearms. And so there have been some, some arguments about the constitutionality and due process, and there are some places and some um, law enforcement um, agencies and representatives specifically that maintain that this is a violation of the Second Amendment and um, they won't enforce these kinds of, they won't implement and enforce these kinds of orders. But um, I think that, that in a lot of ways, like this is just filling a, a gap because there are people, as we've talked about already, who give off, you know, make threats, make vague threats, threats that, you know, don't in themselves allow you to legally remove 
lethal weapons from people, but they are troubling. They, you know, people around them are worried. People are um, concerned that they have access to guns uh, and they're concerned that they're making plans to carry something out or to, to, um, to even do violence against themselves. That's turns out that's what a lot of these kinds of extreme risk protection orders or red flag laws are being used for is to prevent suicide suicides. They're really just filling a hole because there isn't there before this, there wasn't a legal mechanism in a lot of places to intervene and separate someone from firearms for self-harm or for harm directed at others without like a clear categories of threats or violent actions being specified like in the legislation. But Rocco, don't you think, and this may be just a naive question, but I'm just like listening to, I'm thinking if I want to get a gun, I'll get a gun illegally. Like if, if somebody wants to really get a gun and it's really, it's like, we're not talking mental illness. We're talking somebody who really is just a bad person wants to go and commit a crime. They'll have access, I would think, to guns in an illegal way that they don't need to buy it in a legal manner. And they'll still be able to commit whatever that is. So then by implementing laws, you may be affecting folks who want to get guns legally to protect their house, their home, they, wherever they live, uh, you know, like, could we be penalizing the larger picture who, who, wanna, who are honest gun owners for whatever reason? And by the way, I'm, I don't own a gun, nor do I ever want to have a gun, but I'm just trying to play devil's advocate. Yeah, no, I, I think that I see what you're saying, but the point about this is that it's really a targeted intervention. It's like it's one person. And, and so someone, a petitioner or a family member um, or someone very close to the person, there are categories of people, but someone close to the person could themselves file a petition or go to law enforcement and contribute evidence to a law enforcement petition that says this person is a major threat. There are levels of threat um, whether it's an imminent threat. And then there are different levels of orders, whether it's an emergency order that happens right away. But, but in any case, there, there's a lot of evidence that has to be provided to demonstrate that the person is a threat in order for law enforcement to move forward with the order. And before the order is served, the order is run by a judge. So there are emergency orders that where a judge authorizes immediate um, service of the order and then, and then removal of firearms. And then there are orders that are slightly slower that, um, but the same process happens. Everything goes by a judge and a judge reviews the orders then later to either like let them expire or terminate them immediately or extend them for a longer period of time. So so yes, but the thing is that, that you have to, there has to be a lot of evidence for, and a lot of people reviewed and convinced of that evidence in order for these orders to actually happen. Any other thoughts on that uh, point, Amy? Well, I will say, yeah, that um, th this idea, I, I agree with everything that Raka said. And also there is that question of like, well, wouldn't they just get a gun some other way? And I, you know, there was a study that was done. Rocco, you're on the GVRO paper with Garen, right? The, the mass shooting one? Yeah, the mass shooting one, the 21 yeah. cases where, um, so I'll just give a little plug for Rocco's research here since um, <laughs> since I can, that she did with, with Garen Wintemute who runs the UC Firearms Center and some other colleagues there where they looked at 21 cases in California where GVROs were filed um, because of a concern for mass shooting threats. And 
the GVR was filed, the guns were taken away, and none of those people ended up perpetrating a mass shooting, even though the concern was very high. It wasn't just like this guy who's my neighbor is a little weird and owns guns. It was like, this person is specifically saying he's going to you know, get a gun and shoot up this place or do this thing. None of them replaced those weapons with some other firearm that they got illegally. And no acts of violence ended up being perpetrated. So, you know, it's only 21 cases. We don't know for sure that any of those people would have actually gone through with it, but I, who I, knows? Maybe. I, love, I love the fact that you are asking these questions in a methodical way and a research way. I, I really do. I think that for somebody obviously who has not done any of that kind of research, it, I, I like data and I like data-driven research. So it's it's important. I oftentimes see, even in my own colleagues, you know, I hear, you know, if they, if they hear of a mass shooting, the first reflection is, okay, take all of the guns away. And, you know, the scholar in me and the academician in me, I'm saying, well, okay, well, I understand the reaction, but let's just look at the data and research and see what's the proper intervention. Because policy, you know, not every physician can be a policy researcher and a policymaker, right? Would you agree mm -hmm. with that? Mm -hmm. ah. So, so because of your work, um, I guess you were invited to, I don't know, write an article or was it an opinion piece or uh, a review? Tell me, I mean, I think I, uh, I got to know about, you were asked to write something pertaining to that topic, I believe. Am I correct, uh, Amy? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. We, an editor that I had worked with on another journal in the past reached out and said, we're doing a special edition journal on, I think he was looking for paper on firearms and suicide. Um, would you be interested in writing it? Cause that's your area of expertise. And I said, yeah, you know, my colleague Rocco and I can work on that together. And so Rocco decided to join and she was first author. She really did the bulk of the writing and the work. And I was kind of in a kind of helped her outline. I wrote some of the pieces about mental health and mental illness, um, but Rocco was first author and I was second author. But was a review article was not or it was a review article and uh, it was mainly mental health and uh, suicide was it also linked specifically to healthcare in healthcare or just society like not uh, not just in in healthcare providers. It was um, primarily about healthcare mental healthcare providers especially uh, and what like a back some background some policy relevant stuff and then. Um, mostly information about how they can um, intervene and talk with patients and take steps to help patients reduce their risk of injury from firearms and especially firearm suicide. So it was an invited review article in a topic that you have done a lot of research in. So then you wrote the article and then what happened? You submitted the article? Um, we got an email from the editor we'd been working with uh, we actually didn't submit the article. So we we worked back and forth with this editor for a little while. And then um, it kind of, I think, just turned out that we, especially me, uh, I wasn't the kind of person to write this, this article. There was some stuff that was uh, more specific to clinical psychology, I think, and, and methodology and um, stuff that I, I don't have an expertise in and don't know that much about, honestly. And so... Um, it sort of became clear that we weren't really the right people to write that kind of article. I think, Amy, do you want to say anything more about that? Yeah, and I think that um, maybe just to put more of a fine point on it, he wanted to take it a direction that, that we felt was not in line with our expertise and our data. 
you know, to some degree belied a lack of knowledge about the topic. And so we felt that with the revisions, we weren't able to give him what he wanted and he wasn't able to give us helpful edits. And so we ended up pulling the paper, I think last May. Yeah, so after a couple of weeks of back and forth, we said, like, we don't think we're the right people for this, um, sorry. And he was very gracious and said, like, thanks for working on it um, and good luck. And so we thought we would just take this paper elsewhere and it was basically written. Um, yeah, you already wrote the paper my, yeah, some, somewhere yeah. else. Right? <laughs> That's yeah. what we do. <laughs> yeah, and so, and, and then I kind of like let it sit for a while. And then early uh, in January, we got an email from the editor and he just said, hi, I thought you would like to see the paper we came up with um, about firearms and suicide prevention and mental illness. And um, I responded like, thanks, great. Uh, glad, like, glad you got it published. Um, and then I, I didn't even look at it right away. And a couple of days later, I clicked on the link and read through the article. And from the first couple sentences, it was pretty clear that um, it just, it felt like me, <laughs> which is kind of a weird feeling, but um, it felt like- I These are my words. Oh, right, nice. yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, I read like, I read like the first paragraph and it was so weird. Cause I was like, this is Rocco. I mean, it was as clear as if, if Rocco had called me on the phone and her voice had said, hi, this is Steve. And I was like, no, this is Rocco. I know your voice. I mean, that was how the paper was. It's really, it's, it's, I mean, it was so clear because it's something, a lot of the content actually is stuff that I write a lot and in introductions to other papers, papers on related, but not the same topic. And so it's a lot of the same, like the same sources, the same style of presentation, the same sorts of, you know, proportions shown and evidence and um, references cited. So it was, it was, it was just so similar. So, so what's odd about this is that he or I presume it's I don't know if it's he or she, but the editor sent you actually a link to the paper. So it's I'm trying to understand. Uh, you have to diagnose the psychology, Amy. Here, I mean, am I like? Did he like not? Did he? She, did, can is it? He can I say he? I don't know. That's a he. Did he not know? Like he's just completely oblivious to the fact that he did this, or did he figure out you won't notice? Like if it were, if I was doing this, at least I wouldn't send it to the authors I stole from. I will say, Chadi, the differential diagnosis here is very broad. <laughs> but it's weird. Yeah, no, it's very weird. Yeah. It's very weird. Like, and I see a lot of weird. I mean, it's hard to shock me, but I was a little shocked. I'm trying to think like, you know, I mean, there is always the possibility that, I mean, you know, I don't know what tier journal it is, but, you know, there were too many journals to read all of them. I mean, it could have gone under the radar, for example, you may have not yeah. seen, but he intentionally emailed you said, hey, this is what I, it is. Yeah, I actually doubt I would have become aware of it. Um, the only thing is that it might have been a problem when I submitted the paper I wrote, and then it was strikingly similar to a paper that had been published. Um, but I'm not sure I would have otherwise yeah. discovered this. So what, what? So you saw this, you linked, and you realized that a lot of the wording is similar to yours. Um, what happened next? Um, well, I'll start. We very carefully went back to the very first draft that um, I had sent to the editor in April, um, just to, to, to triple check, quadruple check, that it really was like, you know, whole swaths of writing exactly the same. And then other things that were slightly changed, but really too much too similar. And 
so um, then Amy kind of like jumped in and took over and you want to say more? <laughs> Amy, what did you do then? Well, and I think I, I wanted to say too that it was so shocking that I think both of us had this moment of self-doubt of like, are we imagining that we wrote this? Are we, did he maybe re-edit these parts and this was his work? I mean, we just couldn't, we were incredulous and we couldn't figure it out. So we had to really reassure ourselves that, oh yes, this was extremely blatant plagiarism. And um, we quickly did that. And then I contacted the editor-in-chief of the journal and said, hey, you have a real problem with this paper. And he wrote back and, and, I, and I sent him the first draft. I think I sent him the email string. I sent, you know, and I pointed out what paper it was. And he said, well, I'm going to, you know, do an investigation. I've got to talk to the author. There wasn't, he was, in my mind, not quite appropriately apologetic because it, it wasn't, it was, it was pretty clear. I mean, it the wasn't author, the, what, the author was the other editor or he gave it to somebody. The else? author was the managing editor of the journal. This guy was the editor in chief um, who apparently started the journal with the managing editor and it's like their journal. So he wrote me back and said, you know, I'm going to do this investigation. It took him a while after about four or five days. I said, Hey, do you have any, um, do you have any updates for us? I, you know, I, I kind of want to take this to the publisher Springer because we had our attorneys involved at this point. And, you know, the thing that really wrinkled me was he said, I, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but I really suggest you don't take this to a third party. Um, that might really limit your options in the future. Wow. That's a yeah. And in my mind, I'm thinking like, this is this is like one of those situations where they just want to handle it internally and hush it up and make it go away. And there's absolutely nothing for me to gain by not having the publisher know. And if he's not planning to tell the publisher, then I certainly need to. So at that point, I emailed the publisher, Springer, and they got involved within an investigation as well. And this all happened like weeks before I even sent out that tweet. How, how did you know who you would email at the publisher? I mean, like, I always wonder if like it gets lost. I don't I even know who the public, like, who do you email? Do you just go to the online and? There's like a, a thing that says for questions or comments about academic integrity or st oh, stuff like that. There are like certain people for each thing. And so I think that's how we figured that out. So you yeah. sent the email to the publisher with the with thing. What, did you get a response back? Yeah, they said right away, like, we'll investigate this. Thank you. It'll take us some time. And so they did. And we were just sort of waiting. And I, I'm not sure how long it was, but it was a couple of weeks later that I decided to tweet about it because I, I didn't want to rage tweet about it and say something I would regret or say something that wasn't true or that later was, you know, unfair. And so I tweeted about it kind of just to say, like, hey, can you believe that this happened? And I I really tried to keep it like factual and non-accusatory. I didn't put the name of the journal or the name of the um, authors in the tweet thread. And I, I posted it thinking, you know, no one's really going to read this. This is a really boring thread. But if, you know, if oh, no one reads it, I'll just, I'll just delete went, it. It went crazy. That's how I got to know you. Yeah. <laughs> it really did. It it exceeded all expectations. I didn't even, I wasn't aware ahead of time that Amy was going to tweet about it, but um, but it really was, it, it became a huge thing. Uh, but it's so interesting because so much of what people said, what they were outraged on our behalf, but also they said, this happened to me in grad school, or this happened to me when I submitted a paper and then a reviewer rejected it, but then published it like two years later. And there were so many stories of the same kind of stuff. Yeah. 
So, but you tweeted that and you shared your story publicly before you had heard back from the publisher. Yeah, yes. about any resolution or yeah. findings um, of the investigation. Did, uh, did that. And I had to call Rocco and say like, Rocco, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so did that upset the publisher, ignited the publisher? Did they respond after they saw this? I mean, what happened? can't imagine that either the editor-in-chief of the journal or the publisher was very pleased about my tweet thread and I was a little bit worried that I you know was gonna that it, that I would have somehow interfered with things but there was nothing in there that was you know I had been fairly careful when I wrote it you know I have teenagers so I'm all about like be really careful what you put on the internet it's out there forever so I had at least had some sense of caution when I wrote it thank goodness because you know, I actually went back and reread it a bunch of times just to be like, oh, I got to make sure there's nothing really damning in here. And I, I felt fine about what I had said. It was, um, you know, it was fairly factual. And, but I do think we, you know, we got a lot of calls from different media outlets for interviews about this and who wanted to run stories. And so, I, you know, I can only imagine that that was not publicity that the journal or the publisher wanted. So then what happened? Uh, I think that continued that social media craze, but um, we heard back from the, the editor-in-chief, maybe, I don't know how long after he started the initial investigation, a couple weeks. Mm -hmm. And he sort of said, I agree with you. I'm uh, sorry about this. This is, this clearly was plagiarism and we're going to take the steps to do what we need to do, um, put a notice up on the article online and then a week ago or so we got another letter from the editor-in-chief just saying that um, the article would formally be retracted and uh, they'll update the website and there'll be a notice there and we're named in that retraction um, and the the uh, publisher said that basically the same thing that they they would just add this notice about the problem and um, that's kind of it so they retracted the article Yes, they have. Also, I didn't. We. I don't think either of us knew how this works. But they leave the article available, but it has this big notice at the top that says there are problems with these articles. These are what the problems are, and the original work was our work. Do you feel that justice was served, Amy? I, mean, I think that's more for Rocco to answer because it's her work. <laughs> Um, and I think justice will be served when Rocco gets her article published in another journal. Well, yeah. I guess I asked the question because do you think any disciplinary action should have taken place to the managing editor? Well, I will say that the managing editor has submitted a letter of resignation and he was also the head of one of the American Psychological Association divisions from which he has now resigned I know that the judge who was the second and corresponding author on the paper, whom we never had any contact with, um, that his faculty appointment has been suspended at the university where he had one because of this issue. And, you know, I don't, I don't know what his, we have no way of knowing what his involvement was, but the letter that we got and the information we received from the publisher's investigation was that he had no knowledge of the manuscript that Rocco and I had submitted. So Rocco, when you saw a lot of this and the response and, and folks responding about um, similar experiences, how, I don't know, I mean, what, what's, what 
how do you, I mean, I don't know, I'm speechless as to the scientific integrity because this is not something I would have ever thought about. I can see where people take maybe a couple of sentences and then they quote the author and reference the author. Mm -hmm. But this was complete, you know, it's different. Yeah, it's different. And what is so different about it, I think what's so surprising to me is, is that we... We, we wrote so much of it before we, you know, it was basically finished before we initially sent it to the editor. And I think that he easily could have reached out and said, we, like, I really like this part, you know, this, this for what ended up really being the first half of his paper that he published. Um, like, do you want to be a co-author? Like, we meet the, you know, the guidelines for co-authorship and he could have asked us. I'm not sure if we would have done it or not, but um, it would have been so easy to just reach out and say, I want to use the work that you created. Do you want to like join me on this article? Uh, and, mm. and so then not having said anything and then having sent it to, you know, notice of its publication to us was really odd. And I, I think that what we heard a lot about in the, on Twitter, well, what Amy heard a lot about in response to her Twitter thread was, it seemed like very many of those instances were a lot more internal. They were, you know, within universities, within departments, um, sort of in more like mentorship relationships where uh, there might be like slightly blurrier lines about who has done the work and, you know, the collaboration. Well, I, 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 that I was, was going to say that. I mean, I, I've had experience where I felt I should have been the first author and I was second author and it was internal. It was nothing really. And you just, you know, you, I, <laughs> I took it and I said, okay, I guess. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that that's the, the, what I've thought about the most, I think is that um, this was kind of a one-time thing where we didn't really know the editor and it, yeah. this weird thing ended up happening. But I think that the, you know, that what we saw on Twitter was indicative of a larger problem in academia where there are more junior people um, who are working with or for um, or under the guidance of more senior people who, who may um, not be properly credited for what they contribute. Well, I'm glad that you resolved the issue and hopefully justice is being served and we look yeah. forward to seeing your article. So um, you've been very generous with your time. I want to just conclude by asking you what type of research are you working on right now? Uh, Amy, what, what are you, um, you know, I know the general theme, but anything specific you can share with us uh, over the next several months that you'll be working on? Uh, well, I'm, so our biggest thing is our bullet points project that Rocco and I are leading. And that's, um, that's the website that you saw that's a a resource for clinicians on how to talk to their patients about firearm suicide, unintentional firearm injury, firearm violence, um, and how to reduce the risk of that in their patients and just learn more about it. So we're in the midst of developing continuing medical education for both healthcare and mental health care providers and doing some presentations at big academic conferences and kind of as much as we can take our show on the road, there's not really a road, but you know, through Zoom around California to medical schools and other training organizations so we can teach more uh, providers about that. Um, and then I have a couple other papers in the works uh, about for psychiatric uh, professionals to how to evaluate patients who are at risk or making threats of mass shootings. Um, Rocco. I'll let her talk about what her other research is. Right I now. have a request I wanted to do, but I'll let you talk first. Okay. <laughs> um, I have a, a couple sort of longer term ongoing projects related to gun violence restraining orders and, and um, extremist protection orders in California and across the country. 
Um, and then also some survey research that we've done some large state representative surveys in California on firearm ownership and exposure to violence and consequences of that violence. So uh, kind of a smattering of things, firearm and violence related. Yeah, my request is to look at the impact of social media on some of these. Mm -hmm. uh, I really, I mean, I know there's some, some folks have done that, but I, I admit I haven't seen anything that um, I was blown away in terms where I'm like, I like the methodology and I like the, I, I feel there's so much garbage out there. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I think there must be some impact of social media, whether it's on violence, whether it's um, on um, the mental illness and, and mental health and, um, and what that means and the intersection. There's so much out there. And in fact, you just, you know, I mean, you saw the impact of social media. I mean, you put something out there and it got amplified. Yours was amplified in a good way because you were sharing a situation that was important. But I think social media, at least in my experience, has, has become a little bit more problematic where you could amplify a message that may not really be true and becomes hype and it's crazy. Like it becomes literally crazy. Yeah. Well, it's funny because I, I um, saw the power of social media from my tweet thread and also how great it is to hear other people's stories and have my experience and Rocco's experience validated and to get all this support. But it also dawned on me that of the, I don't know, 10,000 likes and however many thousands retweets I got, most of those people don't know me at all. And there was nothing in that tweet thread that I couldn't have completely fabricated. Exactly. So, in theory, I could have made this all up and kind of pretended to take the high road by not naming these people, knowing, which I was naive enough to not totally realize this, but you know, somebody very quickly found out who they were and what the journal was. And I ended up adding a tweet at the end saying like, hey guys, thanks for all the support. Like, please don't dox these people. Let the system do its work and like let the investigations be complete. You know, not because I thought maybe they didn't do it, but because I didn't want to unleash the internet mob on people when that wasn't, you know, that's not the judge and jury and sentencers I want for everybody. And we've seen that go really badly. You hit the nail on the head. I think that, you know, that's really the issue when you, you know, with the power of social media, you could put something out there and, you know, people jump on it before you even verify. And I think that is, to me, that is the classic, like the classic issue, like at least, verify the fact you know and i don't you know i think you know you know do the likes usually reflect uh, the market i mean if they have ten thousand likes it means the market at large likes this kind of story if you've gotten five likes it means you have no market for that story like in, in, a, in, a, in an era of free markets but but i think my biggest issue in social media is that folks jump into conclusions without verifying facts. And Absolutely. I don't know what kind of study needs to be done to investigate the trickle down effect of that, but it just can't be good, you know? No. Well, it was really nice to think that, you know, these 10,000 complete strangers for some reason chose to trust my story, but it was a horrific example of how easily I could perpetuate misinformation had I chosen to, or ruin somebody's life unfairly had I chosen to. And, you know, we've seen this with QAnon and its spread and with the spread of this, you know, idea of gang stalking, all these people believing they're being gang stalked, now finding each other on social media or believing in Q, finding each other on social media and verifying these bizarre conspiracy theories. But it, it made me realize how dangerous it really could be. 
I mean, Rocco, I mean, I think social media could could affect due process. And I, I'm a firm believer in due process. Uh, and I uh, that's really my fear yeah. that, uh, you know, you know, anyway, I mean, that's really my, any thoughts on that? Uh, well, we're going to do final comments from Rocco and then Amy, and then I'll let you go. Last, no, last thoughts. Uh, I, th- I, I mean, I think we've covered a lot. I, I, um, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us and um, we'll be sure to let you know when that paper comes out and uh, when we have more exciting resources and research and stuff to share. Thank you. Amy, any final thoughts? No, just thanks for having us, Chadi, and I'm um, excited to hear the podcast you put together, and this has been really great. Yeah. Thank you to both of you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it, and I'm very thankful, and I look forward to continuing connecting with you and hopefully having you back and uh, sharing your work with the rest. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Okay, folks, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. I hope you learned a few things after today's podcast. And if you've learned just a few things, then I am eternally grateful. Let me know how I'm doing on this podcast. You can send me a direct message on Twitter. That's at Shadi Nabhan, at C-H-A-D-I-N-A-B-H-A-N. You can also check out my website at www.shadinabhan.com. And you can send me an email to shadinabhan00 at outlook.com. Subscribe, rate, review, and refer. And before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a quote from Mark Twain. Kindness is the language which the deaf can hear and the blind can see. Until next time, take care.